The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit tweeting the status of your bowels and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 440 with guest Jeff Atwood, recorded live Monday, April 20th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who wishes to formally apologize for that opening joke, Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here. What's up, Mr. Campbell? Ah, you know, plunking away. It looks like I may actually be moving into my house by the middle of May. Oh, really? Yeah, it's hard to imagine because it's been, uh, what, I moved out last January, but we're, we're running out of problems. Bit by bit, things are getting finished. All right. That's great. And you are going to have a party, right? Uh, several, of which I think you're invited to all of them. Yeah, well, I can't wait for that, especially if Alton Brown's going to cook. I don't, I haven't even looked into that. We'll figure that out later. (laughs) All right, well, uh, still got a little bit of a cold here. Sorry about that, but uh, I'll get over it. I'm sure you will, too. We got to talk about TechEd, man. This just keeps getting better and better. Oh, yes. We are doing a TechEd sweepstakes. Of course, we're giving away a ticket to TechEd. Not only a ticket to TechEd, but a plane ticket and your hotel costs as well. So all you got to do is go to uh, .netrocks.com, click on the green TechEd sweepstakes banner. That'll bring you to a page where you answer a question about a recent show. You know, something somebody said, something like that. It's a simple question. We just got to make sure you're paying attention, you know. And uh, from those correct answers, we pick a winner every Tuesday. And uh, that winner gets a coffee mug, .NET Rocks coffee mug. The the Tuesday winners go in a pool, and from them we're going to pick an ultimate winner on April 30th. So have a good time. Go for it. It's all fun, and you might get a free pass to TechEd with some travel expenses as well. 
Great stuff. And we are going to be all over Tech Hit. We're going to be doing Speaker Idol. Yes, sir. Where people uh, compete with five-minute presentations in front of a panel of judges, typically expert speakers themselves. Uh, we do three heats. The winner Four the heats. F- yeah, three heats and then a final. Four heats and then a final. Oh, four heats and if we do five? Yes. So, yeah, so lunch hour, Monday to Thursday, four heats. We're going to do two IT heats and two dev heats. Oh, I didn't know that. Combined. And then the Thursday night finals is when you'll have two IT pros and two devs in the finals to see who gets the free speaking slot at TechEd US next year. And that's what it's all about. It's a win-win for everybody who has never spoken to TechEd, but it's very hard for the people who are picking speakers to get a really good idea of what they're like. So you get to show your show your stuff in front of a real audience and see how you do right. it. Right. And we videotape all of the, the presentations and the speaker uh, track chairs get to see them all. So last year at TechEd US, we had nine of 16 contestants speaking at TechEd. Yeah, even if you don't win, it's a really great way for, for those track chairs to get to see you present. And, you know, there's lots of talented speakers out there who've not found a way to get into Tech Ed. And Speaker Idol is one of those ways. We're still looking for contestants, too. Yep. So if you've got uh, some speaking talent and you've never spoken to Tech Ed before, send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net, and uh, we'll see if we can make you a contestant. Tech Ed, of course, is going to be May 11th through 15th in Los Angeles. All right, let's get into Better Know a Framework now. All right. Yeah. So Better Know Framework is a little segment I do where I shine a little light on a dark corner of the .NET framework somewhere. I've been uh, looking at the system.windows.controls uh, namespace for a while because there's a lot of WPF controls in there. And today I'm going to talk about a class called UI Element Collection. And this represents an ordered collection of UI element child elements. And you might think, well, this seems kind of silly. Why do we need this? But actually... What it is is the panel-based class uses a UI element collection to represent its collection of child elements. Methods and properties defined by the UI element collection affect all objects derived from panel and define a common feature set for the manipulation of panel child elements. So that's what it's all about. And there's some sample code there that shows you how to uh, take a panel uh, and then use the children property in the dot clear method and then create a new button and add that to the children property. So that's what it is. The children is a UI uh, element collection. There you go. Cool. Just, just a little tidbit for you. Know it, love it, learn it. Richard, is somebody uh, talking to us again through email? Yeah, I've got a great email here for you. Let me read it to you. Hi, chaps. I've been trying to set up a .NET user group for a couple of years now and have not had much luck. Maybe my emails look like spam, but I've even called existing user groups and just got a very disinterested response. So I got a little excited when I listened to show 394, which was Castal and McMahon on Community in Britain, Yeah, which is sad because I really don't get out a lot. You got excited about a show. <laughs> and how excited could you get? Anyway, I contacted Dave about setting up a group under the Next Generation banner, and he sent me a PDF straight away on what to do and what they expected from me, which was a bit odd because I'm used to getting ignored. As a result, I'm off in an hour to our second user group meeting in Hereford with my coordinator, Richard Wilde, where Richard Castell is presenting on Silverlight 3. It's thanks to your show that we could do this. I don't know anyone else who does what you can do and acts as a gathering spirit for the .NET developer. Thanks, fellas. If you're ever in the UK and need a place to flop or have a drink, 
If he's free he'll give me a shout. Herefordshire is about two and a half way, hours away from London, and it's very quiet, not if we're there. Yeah. And lastly, can you mention our new group on the show? We meet at Hereford every third Monday of the month. You can find us at uh, nxtgenug.net. Thanks again, Ryan O'Neill. Uh, sorry, Ryan, we don't do plugs for nope. user groups on the show. Can't do that, Ryan. Sorry. Yeah, we can't do that. Uh, and with that, we'll let you just figure that out for a minute, and let's uh, introduce Jeff. Jeff Atwood lives in Berkeley, California, with his wife, two cats, a new human being, and a whole lot of computers. <laughs> Beautiful. I love it. He has a particular interest in the human side of software development, as represented in his coding horror blog. Jeff is also CEO of Stack Overflow, a fledgling Q&A community for programmers with his business partner, Joel Spolsky. Welcome, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's been oh, a while. You it has been a while. And, uh, you know, I put out on uh, my Facebook sort of, what are you doing now, whatever it's called. I said that, uh, you know, we were interviewing you today, and Paul Sturgill said, give him a big thumbs up for Stack Overflow. That's a good one. People love it. Yeah, it's been really well-received. Well uh, I mean, the response has been very gratifying to Stack Overflow. So I think we're doing something right, which is good. Well, and I remember when we interviewed you last time about coding horror, you were just about to leave Vertigo and said, I got something really cool in the works. And uh, and this is it, huh? Stack Overflow is amazing. Well, I think you're thinking of the, the timeline's a little off there. Oh, okay. Maybe <laughs> but, I'm mixing uh, up two, two different topics. But Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the thing that I was thinking about was there was all this energy in my blog, and it eventually became such a big ball of energy that I sort of had to do something with it. Um, it had sort of taken over most aspects of my professional life in, 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 in mostly good ways, so I'm not complaining. But Stack Overflow is essentially my reaction to that of saying, you know, if, if you have all these people looking at you and, and, and watching what you're doing and, and listening to what you're saying and responding to it, I wanted to channel that energy back into the community because I felt like there were so many programmers who weren't necessarily bloggers, didn't really want to get up on a pulpit like I was doing and sort of have opinions about things and blog about things. They weren't comfortable doing that, but they were, you know, amazing programmers in their own right. right. And Stack Overflow was a way for us to let the community sort of unlock some of that and say, okay, you don't want to blog. That's fine. I get that. I understand that. I mean, I love blogging, obviously, uh, but it's not for everybody. So what you can do is spend just a few minutes on Stack Overflow, ask a question, answer a question, and sort of develop a, a profile and reputation based on that, that you can sort of take with you. You know, it's about you. It's about you being a good programmer and you helping other people become better programmers. Um, that, that, to me, was what Coding Horror was all about. It was about, hey, let's just study this thing we do that's called programming. Let's have a little informal study group and think about what we're doing. And uh, with Stack Overflow... I'm trying to open that up to everybody. So, and then just for the uninitiated, Stack Overflow, a place where you can ask detailed and scientific questions about programming issues, and you can get an answer. And in a in a dig-like move, you can vote. So I, I really like that, that the sort of the things people find most important kind of flow to the top. And uh, what <laughs> I'm just looking right now at something really funny, which is, what is the best comment in source code you've ever encountered? And the very first one, code sanitized to protect the foolish. <laughs> How about this one? Summary, right. class used to work around Richard being a fucking idiot. <laughs> That's the summary. That's <laughs> nice. class. Good stuff. Yes. 
So it's not just, you know, yeah. obviously there's a community aspect to it as well as technical answers to technical questions. Well, that was one of the reasons we wanted it to be Q&A focused, um, was that we felt like the reason a lot of communities sort of went wrong was they became too discussiony. In other words, it became less about getting work done and more about let's just shoot the breeze. Now, there's nothing wrong with shooting the breeze, but Joel and I felt like there needed to be more focus to it for the community to really sort of have value and you feel like you're going there and you're getting something back out of it. Uh, it would be less of, you know, what if my arms were made of cheese and more, you know, I just tried this API and I'm getting these results I don't understand. What do you, you know, can you help me with that? So we want to sort of anchor it to concrete things. And also, you know, as a programmer, the, the way you tend to work has changed. People don't really use, they don't have these giant programming books that they sort of fold open and, you know, go to the index and look up the problem that they're having. Pretty much what most programmers do, and I totally include myself in this, by the way, you have a problem and you type that problem into a, a search engine on the web and you hit enter and you see what comes up. And it's a very reactive style of programming. And we wanted Stack Overflow to be a place you could go and sort of find the answer to whatever problem that you have. As long as at least one other programmer has had that problem, they'll leave sort of a trail of breadcrumbs that you can follow. And a lot of blogs are like that too. And that's one of the things that I loved about blogs was that there are these awesome breadcrumb trails where you can follow the information as well as the author. And we wanted to have sort of a flavor of that in Stack Overflow. It's, it's about the information, but it's also about the people. But we wanted to keep a primary focus on the information. And so there, although there is discussion on Stack Overflow, uh, we try to sort of gently nudge people towards, hey, let's talk about things we're actually doing and problems we're actually having to sort of anchor the discussion. Well, and, and so the sort of discussion model or the uh, the question-answer model means that there's a clear sort of beginning and end. At some point, the, one of the answers gets voted up, and, and that's the end of it for the most part. Yeah, so we try to combine aspects. Joel and I sort of, we saw a lot of sites on the Internet that we liked, and we want to sort of take, do a big mashup and say, okay, we love Wikipedia. Wikipedia is awesome. And, and one weakness that blogs have is if I get a hit on a four-year-old blog entry, Right. that's related to the problem I'm having, I don't know that it's still relevant. I mean, how many bloggers do you know that go back in time and edit four-year-old posts to bring them up to date? Yeah, uh, not many. they don't. So in our system, once, once uh, Stack Overflow sort of learns to trust you, which you accue uh, reputation primarily through people voting your content up, once the system trusts you, you can edit anything in the system. So there's a Wikipedia-like aspect to it. There's a dig and Reddit-style voting aspect to it, because one of the weaknesses of, of programming forums, uh, traditional, say, PHP, BB, the classic web forum that you've seen a million times, you, you go to a thread, and you have no idea where the good information is in that thread. Could be the 50th post, could be the third post. Right. right. So you end up scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and trying to figure out, like, was this person full of crap? Is this person nobody's talking about or she? <laughs> is this code even relevant? You know, what's working here and what's not? You had to read the whole thread. So with voting, all the good information kind of gets pushed to the top. So you generally only have to read the question and maybe one, two, three uh, answers underneath because it's in vote order uh, by default. So we felt like those two aspects were, were really important for us to surface uh, in the system and sort of have this mashup and say, hey, let's build a next generation forum. Let's not just do the same things 
everybody else is doing, but let's try to combine all the things that we like uh, together. And then, of course, there's the reputation system that I sort of alluded to on top of that, where we want the people that, that go to the site to run the site. Not because right. we want them to be like digital sharecroppers, but because they know better than we do. You know, we're, we're, we don't scale. The community scales. So the community has to run the community sort of thing. And plus, it's fun on some level <laughs> to have this community that you're participating in and, you know, get a score. You know, it's just mostly for fun. And most, hopefully people have the right idea about it. Uh, but, you know, it's a way for us to scale the system and also have a little fun at the same time. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. And when it comes to testing web applications, usually you have two options. Do it manually, which is hard and takes forever, or use automated testing software, which is quite expensive and rarely does a good job with modern Ajax applications. And all of this is destined to change with Telerik's new automated testing solution, Web UI Test Studio, which promises to bring a new era of automated testing to the masses. The product is offered in partnership with Art of Test, the experts in quality assurance technologies. Telerik Web Test Studio is specialized for testing ASP.NET applications, especially ones with rich Ajax and client-side functionality. What's more, it's fully integrated in both Visual Studio Team Suite and Professional Edition, making it easy for developers and QA to collaborate. To top it off, the studio ships with special wrappers for the Telerik Ajax controls, which expose control-specific test actions. Web UI Test Studio is ready for the future, with Silverlight testing features coming soon. Check it out at telerik.com, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So what was that aha moment that you had, that stack overflow, ah, Q&A? Well, let me explain this. I had a blog entry about this. I think it explains it better than anything else. So you have your elevator pitch. I think any good idea, well, Joel says that any good idea sounds crazy. Like, if it's a really good idea, it has to sound crazy, because otherwise right. other people would have done it if it's that obvious. <laughs> right. Uh, so I think there's an element of that. Uh, but in terms of your, your elevator pitch, it has to be something that people, when you say it, people get it and their light bulb goes off and they say, oh, I know what you mean. So let me just, let me just say this, and, and you guys react, and, and I think you'll get where we're coming from here. Uh, the first thing, I, I, the, way, the easiest way to explain this to people is say, we're like ex- experts exchange without all the evil. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and honestly, I have nothing against experts exchange, and, and I actually didn't really bring this up much, but I found that whenever I started talking about Stack Overflow, people would go out of their way to say, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you guys are here to displace Experts Exchange, because I go there and you know I, I get a search result that points me to Experts Exchange, and the results look obfuscated, and they're trying to like charge me money to look at stuff, and you sort of feel like you're on a used car lot with a really, the guy in the bad suit with a cigar that's trying to convince you to buy this car. You just have this really, really bad experience. So we thought... Experts Exchange, the idea is good, to have Q&A and to have people be able to find every tiny little programming question that you could possibly have someone else has had uh, and follow that trail of breadcrumbs is a fundamentally good idea, but their execution was so, I have to say it, kind of evil, the way that they're doing it, and it turned a lot of people off. So I think that was the germ of the idea, would say, this is a good idea to have focused Q&A. But the way that they're doing it is entirely wrong. So what's evil about it? There may be a lot of people who've never seen that. Well, site. they sort of, okay, they faux-obfuscate the results. Because you can't serve up to Google uh, a page that's different than you serve up to, the, to a real web visitor. 
So in, in other words, to index the answer so that I right. can actually find the answer, the answer has to be on the page. But for the purposes of their business, they don't want it to look like the answer is there. They want it to look like, oh, well, if you pay us a certain amount of money, we'll show you the answer that you're looking for. Oh, right. So there's an, there, if you scroll way down to the bottom of the page, the answer's there. But if you don't do that, it looks like it's obfuscated. It's like, well, you sign up, and then this magically goes away. Yeah, that's annoying. Um, well, and you guys don't even require folks to sign up to, uh, to Stack Overflow, right? No. Uh, that's the other thing was sort of a radical reduction of barrier to entry. And I got that from my blog because what I found was on uh, traditional blog comments, you don't have to sign in to leave a blog comment usually. You just type in you know, a name, URL, uh, email address, if you have a URL, uh, and you just enter your comment, and you're just on your way. Uh, and we, what I found was the most amazing thing was, would happen was that I have a three-year-old blog entry. This still happens today. Somebody would find that and leave this really interesting comment on it. Some, somebody who was just researching this very narrow topic would find that information on my blog right. uh, and, and leave this really great comment that was like really, again, building this, this trail of breadcrumbs for other travelers to follow. Um, and it, there's this long tail of people looking for information. And if you put a barrier in front of them and say, oh, well, you've got to log in, then you just lose the trail of information sent almost immediately. Right. And that information is essentially lost. Yeah, the guy's not going to leave the comment, which was arguably the most valuable thing. So we felt like if we could reduce the barrier to not having to sign up at all. And again, Wikipedia is like that too, right? I, I can go right now and edit somebody's Wikipedia entry without logging in. Right. So there's ways to make it work. And it just results in a lot, of, a lot more useful information going into the system ultimately by reducing the barriers. But it sounds crazy, right? I mean, this is the good thing about the idea is it sounds crazy. Just like Wikipedia sounds totally crazy. Right. And there's like no way Wikipedia could work because it's insane, right? Anybody can edit anything. How That's that crazy, work? but it just might work. I know. Yeah. But it, it's really true. So I guess the salient point is how are you staying online? Like how do you pay the bills? Uh, we, do, we do advertising right now. Right. And there's some other stuff we're going to do in the future um, around jobs and things like that. Um, that we're we're trying going to try to have have a different different take on it, but I can't really go into a lot of details. But we want to we don't want to be. It's kind of like we did with the site. We don't want to be yet another cookie cutter X where X is whatever. We want to actually try to have a fresh take on the topic. But right now, advertising and advertising is doing uh, well enough that I can sort of afford to pay one full time programmer and myself. Uh, so what's what's running on the back end? It is a fully .NET stack, uh, 64-bit top to bottom. So Windows Server 2008, 64-bit, uh, SQL Server 2008, Service Pack 1, 64-bit, and, of course, .NET 3.5. Now, we are using, in terms of the data layer and so forth, we're using uh, Link to SQL. Really? And ASP.NET MVC. So we kind of had a little bit of a bleeding-edge stack particularly early on when we started. The site's uh, almost a year old now. We were just starting development like in early May of last year. Which is pretty much when MVC was announced. So you've, you've literally been running on the ragged edge of MVC for a while. Yeah, we have. And what really drew me to MVC was that one, I, I know Phil, Phil Hack is, is a, a friend of mine. I, I met him actually through blogging and we became sort of friends in real life. And I really trusted Phil. And I felt like he was on the same wavelength as I was in terms of where he was with ASP.NET. And I think there was a lot of sort of latent, sort of built-up, what's the right word, um, where web forms had a lot of warts, 
I think the more right. you use web web forms, the more I sort of grew to dislike it. So I was actively looking for alternatives. And MVC looked like a great alternative. And just, I mean, I'm always interested in this sort of scale side of these things, but how busy is Stack Overflow? So right now we're doing about 600,000 page views per weekday. It's a lot lower on weekends. Right. And that's that's about double what we were doing when we launched. So the, the public launch was in mid-September of 2008. So we're about, what, six months old? Right. And I see yeah. 140,000 questions or so. So, yeah, yes. six months, that's a lot of questions. questions. Yeah, and, and to me, you know, those kind of metrics, I mean, you need them and they're important. But but really the metric that matters to me is is what you brought up, Carl, which was that when you mentioned on Facebook, other programmers like it and enjoy it. And to me that was really the goal, was to create something worth going to, you know, a community that people, programmers specifically, wanted to participate in and felt like it was really uh you know, bringing them good information. And just on Twitter just now, uh, somebody, McNutt, said, gave me a nice compliment about it. Yep, exactly. That's that's what makes the difference because noise is the hugest problem on the Internet, you know. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why people listen to podcasts is because it's it's effortless when you're driving the car and you're, you know, you're getting a somewhat uh, filtered, uh, you're getting somewhat filtered content. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think we cheated, too. To be fair, I mean, Joel and I had these pretty big audiences that were that were watching us, and that's that's part of that capturing energy that I talked about early on. Uh, so we, we cheated like crazy in terms of having your a random startup that was doing this would have a lot harder time attracting, you know, A eyeballs and, and be re- sort of high-quality people that will sort of follow you. And, uh, you know, not blindly, but they'll say, okay, I, I like your blog. I think you kind of know what you're doing for the most part. Uh, I'll, I'll see if this thing is any good. Um, and I think we seeded it with, you know, really smart, really good programmers. And, you know, hopefully that'll maintain over time. Well, one thing that has been surprising to me that I didn't anticipate was there's quite a few people that come on Stack Overflow. And because you don't have to sign up for Stack Overflow to ask questions, we get a lot of what are blatantly homework questions where people going to college or computer science classes will essentially post their homework on Stack Overflow pretty much verbatim and and try to get people to do it for them. (laughs) That's awesome. I, I, you know, not anymore, but I used to get a steady stream of emails from students. Yeah. yeah. Just abundantly clear you were doing their homework. And the funny thing is, the funny thing is you, you can pull it off. If you, if you can sell it the right way and sort of be honest, like, hey, you know, this is my homework, and I'm trying to figure this thing out. And if you're honest about it, and it's kind of a cool problem, people will totally do it for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's all about selling yourself to the community. And this is, again, something I learned from blogging, was that you have to essentially understand your audience and communicate with your audience in, in a way that, gets them on your, not initially on your side, but gets them to, to sort of believe in the message that you're, you're transmitting. Right. And I actually have gotten some really nice emails from people saying that Stack Overflow has taught them to be better communicators because they sort of watch and see what gets upvoted, what doesn't get upvoted, and uh, what questions are, are sort of liked by the community and which ones aren't liked by the community, and sort of adapted their writing styles over time. And that's something I've definitely done on my blog, uh, in that ultimately it's not that you're pandering to the audience. It's just that you're trying to become a better communicator right. and sort of getting that visible feedback 
for me, it was like blog comments or, you know, people liking my blog, people linking to my blog. But having people, you know, sort of upvote your questions, hey, that's a really good question, or that's a, that, you know, that's an excellent, you know, very correct answer that you gave, um, gives you that immediate feedback you need to improve uh, as a communicator, not just as a programmer. I mean, to me, that was the biggest win, because I'm, I'm really huge on just the communication layer and programming being, I think, one of the most important things you can do as a programmer is, is learn to communicate really well with the other people on your team. There's certainly a point where raw programming talent is undermined by your inability to, sh- to teach anybody or to show anybody what you're really doing. Like that, it's, well, it's sort that's of a, right. A, Absolutely. It's a maturity and, you know, as a developer. The communication aspect of it is just you know, hugely important. If, if, if people don't understand your question, they can't possibly give you a good answer to it. Right. And, and vice versa. If you can't give good answers, you ultimately can't help anyone. Yeah, exactly. So um, a six out of thought, I, I originally asked this, the metrics question, by the way, just to give a, a sense of how MVC is holding together, because you've been, you know, with the MVC stack the whole way. And it's interesting to think about, you know, scale is a concern of mine. Uh, 600,000 page views a day is a non-trivial number. Like it's, it's glad, I'm glad to see it works. Yeah, well, there's I think less overhead and and MVC the re- so the reason to pick MVC if you're curious because there's still tension in, in the community for people that really like the web forms model or just are used to the web forms model and you know they understand it they know how it works they can deploy code with it right. and MVC is kind of like throwing that all out for the most part yes. I mean the party line is that it doesn't but in reality it does it pretty much throws out all of the existing pipeline um, and some people get nervous about that but I personally liked it. Because I felt like I wanted a very minimalistic layer between me and the user. Like I wanted a very fine level of control uh, in terms of what gets rendered to the page and how it gets rendered to the page. And also the URL structures. In other words, the the way users interact with their site is determined largely, I mean, the the tone and the flavor of that interaction is your URLs that you're serving up to the client. And MVC puts a very strong emphasis on having... URLs that sort of make sense and that are logical and clean, and also having totally tight control over your output. Where like every byte that goes on the page, you know what it is, and you put it there, and you know what it's for. Versus the web forms model of like, okay, we're just going to spew all this stuff to right. the browser. <laughs> you know, we're going to have these crazy class names. We're going to have all this view state gunk in there, um, and you just sort of don't care about that. It's abstracted away, but. I found that over time it just it, it got in the way where all that stuff that I wasn't supposed to care about, I ended up having to care about, and the abstraction became a penalty, basically. So with MVC, there are no abstractions. They're very, very limited abstractions, very lightweight abstractions. And you're programming close to the metal, uh, but in this case, the metal is HTTP, which is really simple anyway. So right. it's, I, I think it's ideal. I, I love MVC. Um, it's not for everybody, of course, and they still, you know, web forms is still maintained and still supported, obviously. But um, I have, a, I would have a hard time choosing anything else for myself. But it does does mean that you had to have some talent in HTML and to build. You don't have control, so you had to build your UI yourself. That's right. Well, you just do basically loops and repeating, except you just do it. Um, and one thing they do in MVC, and I've actually noticed they started. They don't enforce this per se, but when you when you create a new view in MVC they don't create the code behind. Because the intent with MVC is you have model, view, controller. And the view is supposed to be very dumb. The view is not supposed to do any heavy lifting. That heavy lifting is supposed to be done in the controller. The view is just supposed to do basic things of layout and iteration and and looping and things like that. 
um, and sort of dumping elements on the page. It's like you're writing a form letter, you know, dear customer, right? <laughs> so you sort of inject the feel into the, the view at that point. Um, and I thought that was a clever design choice, was sort of nudge people into treating their views as these sort of dumb, lightweight containers and not doing a lot of the work there. Because with web forms, you would have code behind that, would t- that were typically very heavyweight, had a ton of logic and code executing there, made it difficult to test as well. There's definitely an energy in, in, a- in ASP.NET web forms that is stay on the page. And that lends itself nicely to Ajax, where you could stay on the page and, and update individual pieces. But here in, in the MVC world, it just doesn't seem like that. You, you do go page to page pretty steadily. Right. Well, the, you do a lot of work in the controller and the model and just not as much in the view. The views are supposed to be very, very lightweight representations of the model and then whatever the controller does to the model. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Jeff, um, I'm looking at some of the questions here, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't uh, highlight some of these because this is, after all, what it's about. Uh, sure. Of course, the most popular one is how does Stack Overflow work, the official fact, and then what's your pra- favorite programmer cartoon. But then we get to hidden features of C Sharp. 503 votes, uh, 169 answers, and 42,000 views. So it starts off, uh, this came to mind after I learned uh, the following from this question where, well, I can't read that. And he basically says, we C-sharp developers all know the basics of C-sharp. I mean, declarations, conditionals, loops, operators, etc. Some of us have even mastered stuff like generics, anonymous types, lambdas, link. But what are the most hidden features or tricks of C-sharp that even C-sharp fans, addicts, experts barely know? And there's just a nice list in it. And, it, and that prompted, that's, you know, got this great conversation going that's like half code, half conversation. And that that's gold right there. It's very this. Yeah, that, that's an interesting example. Of the community sort of finding a good map between sort of what we built. Now, remember, it is a Q and A system, so it's not really it's not good at pure discussion. But right. this is actually a good match because what you're doing here is saying, okay, let's share tips and tricks. Right. So you have a topic, which is what are things you may not know, sort of hidden features of. That's sort of the meme that they came up with. And there's not just this for C sharp. There's there's like hidden features of Perl. There's like hidden features of Python. Right. Uh, you know, there's all these different branches of this question that have come out. And because of the way the voting works, uh, all the really cool tips go to the top. So all the really, you know, tips that people found really interesting, you don't have to scroll down and read. You can just get probably on the first page. But there are, you know, as you pointed out, like 150 of them. And the other thing that's cool about that, and when we started Stack Overflow, one thing I felt that wasn't emphasized enough was that good programmers tend to be interested in a lot of different languages and a lot of different technologies. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of bleed over and cross-training. And on Stack Overflow, we wanted to retain that flavor. 
where we don't want to have this ghettoization where you're a SQL guy and you, you only spend time on SQL sites, you know, you only answer SQL questions. Uh, and, or similarly, say you're a VB.NET guy. All you know is VB.NET. You don't know anything about what's happening uh, outside of the world of VB.NET. On Stack Overflow, you can sort of rub shoulders. There's a lot of bleed over between the different languages. In other words, if you look on the homepage, you'll see questions that have nothing to do with .NET, but they might still be interesting. They might be algorithmic questions that would be relevant to you as a programmer. And we felt like bringing these communities together uh, and sort of saying these, just have the goal of like, let's be better programmers. Let's not focus so much on the tool chain, uh, although that's important, but let's focus on what makes you a better programmer. Um, and certainly there's other soft topics that are yeah. good, like, you know. Oh, here's some really funny stuff. Like I, I, some guy said, you know, what are some funny loading statements to keep users amused while your program is doing something? You know, like when it's I, I love that one. <laughs> That's one of my, my favorites. I mean, it people is sometimes too, get a little yeah. up in arms about some of the questions that become popular. Spinning um, up the hamster. They're not necessarily super technical questions. But oh. I think there's a certain f- – you should still – we still want people to have some level of fun on Stack Overflow. You know, it's not all work. It's not all give us a programming problem. It's, it's, it's okay to have some bleed over with the fun questions. I like this one. Testing data on Timmy, ellipsis dots. We're going to need another Timmy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man. And you're right. It's, I think it's very challenging to keep the lightheartedness that good development generally is. Uh, into a system that, without actually turning it into comedy and, and, and losing a train of thought entirely. Warming up large it, It's a very collider. fine line. It's a very fine line. Um, I, I think it's easier on a pure discussion forum to, to, to just say, okay, anything goes. You can do anything. But once you start drawing a line and say, okay, okay this is what we do as a community and this is not what we do as a community, there's going to be that gray area. It's usually only 5% or less. But people get very focused on that 5% that's kind of contentious. And I, I don't feel that it's actually representative of the system. I think not having boundaries around what you can ask on a site, I think, is way more toxic than the anything goes mentality. Can I, we should use some of these, Richard. Some of these, some of these things we should use on .NET Rocks, like the uh, Net Positive browser on BEOS had some great error messages written as haiku. The website you seek lies beyond our perception but others await. <laughs> nice. Error message haiku. That's great stuff. You got to go. And then, of course, there's the classic SimCity, which is, I think, reticulating splines. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's a I classic. Remember, I, re- I remember loving SimCity startup sequence because some of those lines are too good. You didn't want to get a faster computer because they'd go by too quickly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Sims did that as well. What? Uh, so I'm curious as to how folks have used... Uh, Stack Overflow in ways you just didn't expect? Um, the, well, I think one thing that happened that, that was a little unusual was that we almost immediately we saw that there was a little bit of a problem in the system. I mean, this is the fun thing about social software is that it's very, very hard to predict where things are going to go because people are fundamentally unpredictable. You don't actually know what's going to happen. So that makes designing the system sometimes challenging. You have to be very uh, adaptive in the way that you approach it. And we saw that these fun questions, like the questions that you bring up are indeed really, really fun. Like I love loading questions. I think that's a fantastic question. Totally belongs on Stack Overflow. But one of the problems with it is it's so popular. Remember how I mentioned that every time somebody upvotes you, you get reputation score? 
Right. And your reputation goes up and you can do more stuff on the site. Well, think of if you're a hardcore technical guy, you're looking at these really narrow, difficult technical programming questions. Those are never, ever going to be as popular as what's your favorite programming cartoon. Yeah. So there's a lot more eyeballs on the cartoon question. That means a lot more upvotes. So you might feel a little cheesed that a guy got, you know, 100 upvotes for a cartoon that he posted that he didn't even write, right? It's a cool cartoon, say it's XKCD, uh, but he didn't create it, you know, and he gets 100 upvotes. And, you know, you get a measly 10 upvotes for this awesome programming question, awesome programming answer that you just posted. So it's a little fundamentally unfair, right? Yeah. <laughs> to have the fun questions treated the same as, as the programming questions. Because of the way people react to them. So one thing we do in terms of isolating these, we saw that the questions that tend to be fun, there was one common pattern with these questions. They, they always had lots and lots and lots of answers. Because a normal programming question, why would you have 30 answers to a programming question? Right. Are there really 30 different ways to do something with, say, a C-sharp algorithm? Probably not. So early on, we instituted a rule where once, once a question has 30 answers, it switches to a mode that we call community wiki. And once it's in that mode, you do not get reputation. Nobody in the thread gets reputation from upvotes anymore. Um, and, and that helped a lot. But I think that was probably the single biggest thing that we didn't really see coming was the big disconnect between the fun questions that everybody has an opinion about and everybody can vote on and then everything else which were these narrow, you know, sometimes language-specific things that people are posting that are really what we designed the system to do. But we wanted to have both. You know, we wanted to have it both ways, and that sometimes that's tough. Yep. Yeah, I, I went and looked at uh, I went and looked at the users. Of course, John Skeet's on top by a long way, and when you look at his questions, you see that they, they tend to be wiki-ish questions. Well, it depends. I think John Skeet's a little bit of a special uh, case in many, many ways. <laughs> uh, John Skeet is kind of like the Chuck Norris of Stack Overflow. <laughs> now there was the, he became a meme because he was he was so good at answering questions. I mean, he really knows his stuff. He's like he you knows C sharp and Java like intimately, like he's written books and stuff. And he he enjoys answering questions and he answers them brilliantly. I mean, he answers questions. So as a result, he got tons and tons of upvotes for all these hundreds and hundreds of really good answers that he was posting in the system. Um, and he became a little bit of a meme on the site. In fact, if you look, there's actually a uh, John Skeet facts thread you uh -huh. want to look up that's very, very funny. <laughs> but it's that's John good. Skeet facts in the style of the Chuck Norris facts meme. Right. Yeah, you like that is... word meme. It's a good, word. a good word. Well, I think when you deal with social software, I mean, you deal with memes all the time. Absolutely. And, you know, that, that's definitely one that comes up. Now, one thing I like about the, the John Skeet... Uh, phenomenon, if you will, I won't say meme, uh, is that it highlights one of the reasons we created Stack Overflow was not to show you how awesome we are for creating it. I really, I, I really mean this when I say I really want to surface how, you know, the skill of my fellow programmers, people that don't necessarily have blogs, sort of like J random programmer. I mean, I was always amazed at all the jobs I had, like how smart the people I was working with were for the most part and how, you know, dedicated they were to it. And on a site like Stack Overflow, if you answer a few questions, eventually you start to get a real reputation in the system. Like people will see you, you'll have uh, you know a good track record of questions and answers that people actually respect and can you know 
respond to just with, you know, five or ten minutes a day, not a big time commitment. Now, John Skeet obviously has been spending lots and lots of time on Stack Overflow. So, again, he's very much an outlier. But the, the principle is, is really there. Yeah, and, and, and edge cases are edge cases. And they're always, unfortunately, they end up on the first page. But it, what does your more average uh, user look like? Uh, gosh, I haven't done stats in a while. But I, I, I think the, the average reputation is still one. <laughs> because yeah. we have a lot of drive-by users. You know, they may sign up or they may, you know, answer a question, answer a question or ask a question, um, but they're not really there to hang around, and, and that's fine. Uh, we just want people to be able to get, you know, the answers that they need. We don't necessarily demand that they stay on our site and, you know, network with us and, you know, do all that Facebooky kind of stuff. That's not really what we're about. We're about disseminating the information as effectively as possible to whoever needs it. Uh, including anonymous users. So the average reputation is probably like one, actually. Yeah. Um, but if you, if you go to the users page, you can, you can sort of page into it and sort of get an idea of the distribution. It's very much a power law, like you would expect. Do you have any uh, interfaces besides a browser to it? Do you have, uh, oh, I don't know, text interfaces or Twitter interfaces or anything like that? Uh, we don't. Now, there's been a lot of requests for an API, and we haven't really gotten to that. We do have RSS feeds. We have RSS feeds for the front page, the questions pages, the users pages. There's, there's RSS feeds in key places if you want to track stuff that way. But there's been a lot of requests for an API, and we just haven't... We have a really small development team and haven't been able to get to it quite yet, but we would love to. I would love to have an API. Yeah, some interesting possibilities there. I checked your median is 13. Uh, so I guess that's right. uh, it's higher than one anyway, but I bet your average is dragged down to one. Yeah, I think, I'm pretty sure the average is one. That doesn't surprise me on the median. It's pretty low. I think it was actually higher. I think it's been going down over time. And it's just, yeah, because your user base is basically so free to come and go, there's, there's not a lot of incentive unless you get into the social elements of this to, uh, to log in and to, to be tracked. Right. But, but the cool thing is that people get, who get really engaged, I think, tend to be the really quality programmers. I guess it's self-serving for me, for me to say that. Uh, but the type of people that ty- like the system are the type of people who can produce content that gets upvoted. And the audience doesn't really lie. Like, I mean, when I noticed on Reddit how effective the voting was there. Um, I, I think programming is a very much a peer acceptance-driven sport, if you will. Right. So I, I think if you're, if you're good at getting your peers to, to vote up your content, then you're a pretty good programmer, I would say. Yeah, it's an interesting effect. It's sort of sorting that out. Or at least, I mean, again, you get into that basic challenge of uh, they've got to be good enough communicators. The most talented developer may not be communicating his answer well enough for you to understand it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's an interesting balance there that you definitely, the guy who's successful here is not only smart, but a great communicator. Absolutely. I mean, we're definitely optimizing for certain things, and I have a very particular idea about what... In other words, everything you do on the system that that you get rewarded for is a behavior that I think ultimately benefits you as a person. It's not about us winning the web. (laughs) It's about you becoming a better programmer. So to that extent, you know, the acceptance of your peers is, is a big one. And then we have this badge system. I don't know if you guys saw on the top of the page, but there's a badge. Uh, and that's based on the Xbox 360 achievements model. Do you guys right. play Xbox 360 at all? Uh, not I much found, anymore. 
Yeah. I don't really play games much. The the cool thing about achievements on the Xbox 360 was that as you played the game, you would sort of unlock these things. And usually they weren't really publicized. I mean, the game didn't go out of its way to sort of herd you along, but you would just sort of do things and then the game would say, "Oh, you've you've unlocked this badge." Right. And these badges became very, very seductive because once you started getting them, you realized there was a purpose to them. They, let me give you an example. So like in, in, in most games, I, I figured out there were three sort of levels of, of achievements. There were the achievements you would get for just doing things in the game. In other words, you finished level one, you finished level two, you finished level three. Um, you played multiplayer, you played single player. So what that's teaching you is, okay, try all the different parts of the game just to see if you like them, Right. So then getting the badge becomes a way for the game to say, hey, try all the parts of me just to see if you like them, right? You might, you might not, but just try them so that we, we have an analog in that. It's the bronze badges, which is you get those for just leaving comments, for getting your first upvote uh, on a question, getting your first upvote on an answer, filling out your profile, for example, gives you a bronze badge. What we're really saying is just try the system, you know? Try it out. And then there's another level on top of that, which is things that are actually somewhat difficult to achieve. Uh, for an example on Stack Overflow would be you got a question that has 25 upvotes. That's not easy to do. So that's a silver badge. So that's, that's something you would sort of work towards as a goal. And then at the highest level, there's stuff for like the completionists, for the people who are like really hardcore, who love the game. They're like, I'm going to get every single achievement for this game. Um, so these these are really difficult to get. Like you, if you guys have played like Grand Theft Auto, it'd be like those collection games where you collect like bundles of money or whatever. There's like a hundred bundles of money all over the city. And you have to collect them all. Um, so we have gold badges for people that are really engaged in the system. Uh, that would be for something like let me give you an example, like getting a question with ten thousand views. Very difficult to do. That's a gold badge. Yeah, these are like milestone things, right? They're they're sort of a fame item. They are, and they're attached to your user profile. So people can sort of see your track record. They can see, okay, what kind of questions do you ask? What's your reputation score? You know, what are your question score? What are your answer scores? And it's all ambient data. We don't make right. it like a formal scoreboard. We're not saying you're winning, you're losing. We just throw the numbers out there. And the funny thing is with people, if you throw the numbers out there, they add the scoreboard in their mind. Like, you don't have to have a scoreboard because right. they'll build one for you. Like, they'll yes. just start playing by the rules. Um, so in some ways we encourage that. Like if you go to your user page, you'll note that by default, your questions and answers are sorted by score. Now we don't make this, we don't say this explicitly, but what that's basically saying implicitly is we want you to ask and answer questions that get highly upvoted. Right. But we don't make it a game. It's just ambient data. It's just there. So you, yeah. But people see the sort order and they get it. They're like, okay, that's what I'm supposed to be doing here. I'm supposed to be asking questions that get upvoted and answering questions uh, that also get highly upvoted. Um, and the, the cool thing, coming back to badges, the other cool thing about badges, they're not just for fun. If you go to the badges page, there's a count there that tells you how many times each badge has been awarded. This right. tells us how many people are actually doing things in our system. Like, for example, uh, there's a badge called Commentator. For just leaving 10 comments, that's a bronze badge. 7,721 people have gotten that badge. So that's a data point for us on how people are using our system. It's not just – so my point is that it can be fun, 
but it's also useful, right? You can sort of see what people are doing in the system versus just guessing, well, I don't know how many people leave comments. Well, you can just see how many people have gotten the commentator badge. So, I mean, I find it interesting that this, these are mechanisms for encouraging people to do the things that make the site successful. Absolutely. And we try to only reward things that actually not only make the site successful, but make them successful. Like, right. We get a lot of proposals for badges that are just do this over and over. You know, and that's, that's sort of the EverQuest problem. Or the right. World of Warcraft problem, where all you're, you're just level, you're just doing the same things over and over. You're not really adding value to your life or the world by doing the same thing over and over. So we actually only want to reward you for things that actually build you and build the system. In other words, asking questions that actually get highly upvoted by your peers—that's something we want to reward you for. Not just did you ask 50 questions that may have been good, may have been bad. We don't know. Right, Jeff. This seems like it would apply in a lot of other vertical uh, markets, not just programmers. Do you have any? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah? Are you going to do that? Are you going to make it available? Well, we, we do have uh, an IT theme site coming up. Now, one thing, we're a little cautious there because I actually, almost on a daily basis, get very complimentary emails, which I appreciate. But along those same lines, are asking, it's like, this works great for programmers. What about X? Where X is lawyers, doctors, people who like cars, people who like to build computers. Right. You know, they love the system. So it's very complimentary. Um, and, you know, I, I'm humbled to have those kind of requests. But at the same time, Joel and I had a very specific audience in mind when building this. And one thing we've learned with, with social software is that it's heavily determined by the audience in terms sure. of the reaction to the software. Like, let me give you some specific examples. We use markdown syntax for the posts, so you can actually do bulleted lists and links and things like that. Right. That is not like a GUI. That's not like a WYSIWYG type of editor. Sure. That's a very programmery thing where there's actually like a syntax to the markup. It's almost like you're typing in HTML, kind of. It's simplified. It's not quite HTML. Um, and also we use OpenID, which is somewhat technical. OpenID is not a super consumer-friendly thing yet. But for programmers, we thought it was a right choice because we felt like OpenID was something programmers would understand and also it would teach them about a, a way to have federated identity on the net so we don't have you know 10,000 websites with 10,000 different logins. So there are some decisions we made that we're not sure will scale to, say, doctors or lawyers. I'd say OpenID is... Uh... Uh, consumer-friendly, just not consumer-adopted. Yeah. I mean, it's got a ways to go. Um, I'm just not comfortable pitching that as, you know, something for, say, the, the hypothetical, you know, law firm that loved our system. And, yeah. and we get inquiries like that really every day. Wow. But I, I feel very, very comfortable. There's enough overlap between programmers and sysadmin slash IT guys that I'm very comfortable that Server Fault, which is the name of the uh, the sister site, that we're going to launch in the next two weeks, basically. Um, that's going to be IT slash sysadmin theme topics. I think it will scale well to them. And then if that goes well, we'll see in terms of having other communities that could form around the software. But we want to go very slow and sort of play to our pander to our audience, if you will. Yeah, okay. So what's next for uh, Stack Overflow? What's coming up? Um, I guess that that's really the big thing is just to scale it out to Serverfall. I guess I kind of... That that is really the next step to see because on on the programming side, and I'm sure you guys will understand where I'm coming from when I say this. We have to now split our code base. We have to figure out how do we have <laughs> two copies of the code 
that are really the same, but like, you know, it's almost like a localization problem at that point. You know, I got to change all the, the logos to the different logo, a different style sheet, different words, different, you know, help pages, different about pages, but fundamentally the same software underneath. So it's really more of a technical challenge than anything else to get that going. Awesome. Anything else that we missed that you want to talk about before we wrap it up? No, I don't think so. Well, okay. Thanks a lot. Uh, Jeff Atwood has been our guest. He and uh, Joel Spolsky are running uh, stackoverflow.com. Ask your questions. And thanks again, Jeff. Yeah, you're welcome. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And we'll see you next time. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a